0: Thank you everyone for joining us today for Film Comment's Best Films of 2021 Countdown. We're so excited to unveil our highly anticipated list with you all. I'm Devika Kagirish. I'm the co-deputy editor of Film Comment along with my colleague Clint. We've been for years doing this end-of-year poll where we ask a bunch of our contributors and colleagues, you know, critics and editors and filmmakers from all over the world to vote on the best films of the year. And we were really excited to do that again this year. It's been a really crazy couple of years for the movies. And we wanted to do this so that we can talk about why movies are important and which movies are important after this kind of strange time. And the results are in. We put it into our super sophisticated number crunching machine and the top 20 films of the year, top 20 released films of the year, and top 20 undisputed films of the year. Those lists are going to go up tonight when we finish this countdown. And today we're going to be counting down the top 10 released films of the year. So these are films that have received a theatrical or virtual run in the United States in 2021 and I'm so thrilled to have this all-star panel of folks to help us unveil it. So let me start by introducing Clint.
1: Hi, I'm Clint. uh, Clinton and Kurt, I'm the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. Thank you, Devika. And thank you, panelists, for joining us here tonight.
0: And then we have Bilga Evri. He is the film critic at Vulture and New York Magazine and just an excellent voice on movie culture that we're glad to have here today. We have Edo Choi, who is the Assistant Curator of Film at the Museum of the Moving Image. He is also a voter in our poll. He wrote something for the end-of-year package that will be published tonight, so don't tell them what it is, obviously. <laughs> and we have Beatrice Loeza, who is the Associate Web Editor at the Criterion Collection and writes for Film Comment and a bunch of other publications, uh, also a participant in the poll, and glad to have you here, Beatrice. Cool. All right, so... Let's get started. Um, before we start the countdown, I'm wondering if anyone on the stage or in the audience has any prognostications, guesses, you declarations.
2: Drive my car.
0: Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh yes. Happy birthday Hamaguchi is a good note for us to start on.
1: Are we talking about number 1?
0: No, I mean it's
1: general just anything. Yeah, we'll the get countdown. there. We'll
0: get there. Ah, okay. I th- <laughs> and just well, so you guys as, know, yeah. Beatrice and Bilga, just because of circumstances, not favoritism, they both know the films on the top ten list in alphabetical order, so the ranks are going to be a surprise to them. Edo has no idea what's coming. Uh, and of course, Clint and I know what's up, so there will be everything. all kinds of different reactions.
1: It's like a game show.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's see how right we're wrong. It was wrong. apparently Paul Everyone Schrader's number one movie Yes, here. that's what we heard. <laughs>
2: hey,
1: I mean, you know, you got to have confidence in your work. Yeah. King shit. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> yes, that is what the kids say. How about our panelists? Any words before we jump in?
3: I feel like I might be the villain on some of these picks, Ooh. but to be disclosed. You have to live up to that promise now. <laughs> yeah,
2: maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> Like you said, I, I know what's on the list. So if I make a prediction for number one, then I will have given away something that's on the list. That's true.
0: Yeah, so no prediction. But, but I, you could just leave them. <laughs>
2: but, it's, but it's interesting, though, uh, because we were talking about how we had the, uh, the, the panel at the end of the festival...
1: Yeah, yeah, we Bilga was on a panel at, at the end of the New York Film Festival, a rap panel that we did with yeah, Molly Haskell.
2: And, and, and we talked about a lot of these same movies. We did. At
0: that panel. Yeah, that is a bit Maybe of a surprise. Yeah. So we'll see Bilga if, if you've changed any of your opinions.
4: All I know is compartment number six is not on the list. It's uh, the only bit of uh, but information it's a really that good I gave. Movie. <laughs> and you all should go <laughs> see it.
0: All right. So let's unveil the number 10 movie of the year
1: there it is yeah.
0: Yeah. I love this movie so I'm gonna let other people talk about it how do people feel about its place
1: Undine is the movie for the audio listeners on the podcast which will eventually this will oh, eventually yes. be That's true. Um, <laughs> I like this movie I don't think it was not in my top 10 for sure on my personal list um but yeah, I, I don't know if I have that much to say about it. But we might start with people who loved, the, maybe you loved the movie. You I wrote do. about the movie. You wrote I a beautiful do. a beautiful essay in the film comment letter about it. Do you want to
0: Well, Someone stop me then, you know, uh, because I do love talking about this movie. Maybe a good way to get... I I was, like, really thrilled, and I promise I didn't do any uh, voter fraud. I was very (laughs) thrilled to see this movie uh, rank so high because I was worried it would get forgotten because it premiered at the 2020 Berlinale. That's a long time ago. And then it came out in February? or no, maybe June 2021? Um, July, I... I can't even in remember. May. May, May, actually. May, yeah. Which is pretty early in the year, and like I don't think people were watching it theatrically. I think it was a virtual release, and I really thought that people would forget about it. And a lot of people have described it as a minor pet sold, especially since it came after Transit, which ranked really well in our 2019 film comment poll and in general was a well-received film and I think introduced a lot of people to Petzold. Um, But I absolutely do not think this is a minor film at all. I think this is an incredibly significant and historically rich film, which actually sees Petzl, you know, I think, complexify his interests in, be it history, in the topography of Berlin, in the acts of doubling, in the way in which the tropes classic tropes of cinema, be it doppelgangers, or be it, uh, you know, love at first sight, or these these grand cinematic ideas that he's always playing with, often drawing on like Hitchcock and, you know, classic Hollywood, um, how they really reveal something very structural about the world, you know, and that they're not frivolous or limited to the domain of art, but they're really about the world as we live in it politically, socially, and historically. So I'm, I'm pretty thrilled to see it here, but... Again, I, I'd like to know what other people think because I've just, I talk about this movie a lot, too much.
3: Well, I, I agree with you. I, I it, it was on my top 10, so I'm very glad it it made it because I, I also thought it would be forgotten. And also because I, I feel like it has been generally diminished relative to Petzl's other films. And I think a part of that has to do with like the sort of pseudo genre elements. I mean, it's the mermaid movie, <laughs> um, especially relative to the fact that, you know, Petzold is often, like Transit, Phoenix, these are big World War II Holocaust movies. There's like a certain weight to that. They say Um, big
0: things very clearly. Right,
3: right. Um, But like with Andina, I mean, Petzold is once again, you know, there's an encounter between, you know, his interest in modernism and like classical melodrama. But like here, there is an element of, of mysticism that, you know, you know, I found extremely poignant and um, something that really stuck out to me about this film is, I mean, Petzold is clearly interested in, like, water. Like, I'm thinking of Yella, like the image of, like, the soaked... Um, oh, God.
0: Characters in his movies always yes. die in the water. Yes, yeah, yes, it's yeah, but like here... like this Moby Dick thing. Right, yeah. right.
3: Um, but here, I mean, there's an a whole, like, under water world the murky depths of like this river like an actual like woman creature that comes from it and i think it's such an interesting um contrast to you know his vision of like this urban development and progress and history like in contrast to like this atemporal like underworld or underwater world um and to have those two poles sort of embodied by Paula Beer and Franz Rogowski, and then also, and they're obviously opposites, and yet they have this like incredible electric chemistry. This love and they're both is like stars of yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I thought it was an incredible film, and not at all uh, minor pets old.
4: Um I I think it's a beautiful movie. I uh, I did put it on my list, not on my top 10. I have not been the world's largest Petzl fan previous to this. And I was really struck by how emotional the film was in particular. And, uh, there's actually a moment at the beginning of the film that really just moved me. It's the very, very beginning of the film where, uh, indeed the title character, um, is, uh, broken up with by the first man that she's seeing in the film who's ultimately a minor figure uh, and uh, this is actually before the credits even roll and as she's sitting there having been left abandoned by this this man uh, this title start to roll and there's this brief quotation um, of a, a theme um, a Delarue theme from um, uh, the soft skin, True folks the soft skin um, uh, over this, this moment while, she, while she's just sitting here beginning to weep um, for having been sort of abandoned, bereaved, romantically bereaved. And I thought it was a very kind of interesting citation for Petzl to, to make and kind of opened up a whole space of romantic possibilities for his movies that I hadn't seen before.
2: Yeah, I'd echo that. I was actually surprised at how romantic it was. I'm actually... I, I like the film a lot. I didn't put it on my list because I am also one of those people who forgot that it was a 2021 release. You know, Petzold is one of those filmmakers I, I've always kind of admired, but no film of his has ever kind of just really popped for me. This actually might be... I mean, I'd have to kind of go back and rewatch everything again, but I feel like this might actually be my favorite of his of his mm. films. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, and, and there's... I mean, there's a kind of tenderness in it. I, you know, it's not that the other films don't have these elements, but but you don't feel like it's it's part of, like there, there's a kind of tenderness in the moment, like you can actually enjoy it in that way, which I appreciate because he, he, he handles that very well. I actually thought there could be an interesting, you know, the movie could be an interesting companion piece to uh, this is not a burial, it's a resurrection because of this idea of sort of, the, the the past states of of cities and things like that and I mean, because yeah. this this and the idea of you know the past being submerged um i mean two very different movies that uh, this That's is a really great connection
0: not, though I, it's yeah. not a
2: romantic movie at all but but i do think that there's kind of some an interesting thing there um that that he's working from one angle and the director of that film is working from the other angle i think might be getting ahead of ourselves here. Yeah,
0: no, but I think that's that's a really good connection, and also this idea of haunting is something that is simultaneously cinematic and romantic, and something very prosaic, you know, uh, both movies. And I love that you found it to be particularly tender. I mean, I think that's what Petzold does really well, and maybe best in this film is this absolute commitment to beauty but which doesn't exclude all of the other things that he's trying to say or interested in saying, which sometimes happens in movies where you feel like you can get one or the other. And here, beauty is so much a part of the way he looks at the world analytically as well.
3: I feel like Franz Rogowski is someone that really embodies this more tender, pet-sold impulse. Because to me, I mean, I'm obsessed with him for various reasons, but he's like such a sweet himbo character, (laughs) like in here and in transit. Um, Anyways, I love him. (laughs) So
1: are we ready to?
0: Yeah, we're all like sort of in agreement, which is boring, even though I'm glad the movie's here.
1: So if we're ready for the next selection in the countdown, number nine. And number nine is Benedetta. (laughs)
0: currently playing in these very yeah, theaters. You can go see it. Yeah.
2: How's it doing?
1: <laughs> we can't...
0: Well, re- remember, well, we need to state the means. title.
1: What's that? State the title. Oh, Benedetta. Paul so, Verhoeven's Benedetta. So who
0: here... I feel like Bilga Yugo. You like the film, right? I, I I was
2: mixed on the film. I had huh. to review it um, and I actually watched it twice. Um, you know, I'm, I've, I've never been a big Verhoeven fan. I mean, they're... To be fair, there are a couple of films of his I love. Um, but but I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, like, in the tank for him. Uh, and so I always have this, like, every time I approach one of his films, I'm like, is this going to be, like, the good Verhoeven or the bad Verhoeven? Um, and I actually
0: found So it what was, is... Before, yeah, what's the good What's ones? your good Verhoeven? What's your bad Verhoeven? I,
2: I, I really like his... The, the, films, the films he did before he came to Hollywood. I, I really mm. love RoboCop also. You know, Total Recalls, whatever. I, 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 I don't love... Starship Troopers. I don't love Showgirls. Um, I, I I like Black Book. I did not like El. I, I find that you know he has a tendency to be somehow coy and blunt at the same time in his work. Um, I, there were things about Benedetta that I thought were really interesting, and th- and it's probably in some ways maybe the most sincere film he's ever made. I, I I know this. The issue of faith is really important to him, and the connection he makes in the film between. For lack of a better, for like faith and horniness, I thought that was really interesting. Like because human impulse is something he's always been fascinated by. Well, passion, maybe. Passion. Yeah, but, uncontrollable. But like, but like, but like, but not just passion, but just you know, like a like a physical urge, yeah, right. right? And the like connecting that idea to spirituality, I think, is fascinating. Um, my problem is that the movie. Yeah. <laughs> movie really got a little porny for me not, not 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 in terms of like oh no no you can't show that kind of thing <laughs> like it just felt a little too slick like the the the, the sex scenes and stuff just felt a little mm-hmm. too and that's one of the things about verho like it felt a little too hollywood and maybe that's one of the things that people like about the film but i just there was a certain there's a certain like i kind of wanted a, a bit more realism mm. um
1: it's definitely not a very realistic depiction of what is it, the 16th, 17th, century? Sure. The nuns century. are
3: contoured and perfectly highlighted. Right. So. Well, there's that.
2: There's that. The another thing I kept thinking, though, was that, you know, he, he, he plays with her point of view really interestingly at first because, you know, we see her visions of Jesus and stuff like that. But then later on, you know, we don't really see any of that stuff. So we're kind of left to determine whether, you know, what she, whether she's sincere. Um, and... I like the ambiguity, but I felt like just narratively it kind of cheats in that way because it's kind of like telling us what's actually going on with Earth first, and then later on kind of abandons that. And I felt like that the change in that perspective to me didn't feel uh, organic. It felt hmm. it felt um, opportunistic. And I wasn't crazy about that, but I did watch it twice, so it's not like I I
1: kind of felt like that was the uh, also having to do with the with this idea of faith, like her faith, like it challenges the audience, basically says more or less that Benedetta is likely conning people and on on a certain level. But does it really matter? Like this, this under her underlying motivation, her underlying beliefs are strong enough to or, you know, sincere enough to kind of overcome whatever lies she might tell. The means justify the end, the end being salvation here, but
0: or climax, climax, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I also want want to say that I think the final scene really just kind of like made the movie for me when they're you know looking at the city burning in the distance and waking up in a barn. I thought that that was just like a very audacious shift and an unexpected choice that has kind of stuck with me since seeing it.
3: Okay, so, um, like Bilga, I was also mixed on it, but for, like, radically different reasons. Um, I am a big Paul Verhoeven fan. Like, Elle is an incredibly, like, important movie for me as someone who, like, hates Promising Young Woman, for instance. Um, But, I mean... With Benedetta, I was like just incredibly underwhelmed. Like I felt like it was sort of marketed as this like hyper transgressive non-sploitation movie with tons of sex, but like it was pretty skimpy on the sex scenes, in my opinion. Um and Yoga so got...
1: says too much. You right. say not enough.
3: No, I, 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 <laughs> right. I didn't
2: say too much. I said too slick, too, uh, too slick, oh, okay. too corny,
3: yes. As an adjective. Okay. <laughs> um and I don't know, like halfway through, I was like, "Mm, this is like kind of muted. I'm a little bored. This almost feels like a workplace drama of like, you know, oh, you're blaspheming. No, you, Um, back and forth, like, you know, and I think this is kind of rooted in Verhoeven's general, like, hatred of authority that like this movie would kind of unfold as like, you know, a questioning of like, the fraudulence that underlies like institutions and like you know especially one as like hyperbolically rigid as like the old time catholic church Um, but i mean i think that's kind of interesting in and of itself like ultimately i kind of viewed the character of benedetta as like a high-powered corporate executive that like knows how to drink her own Um, (laughs) kool-aid So that was sort of interesting. But in terms of like what I was expecting out of a big Verhoeven spectacle, like I was very disappointed. Um, so, yeah, it definitely yeah. wasn't
1: too spectacular. Sorry, I don't
4: No, no, I just I'm going to double down on what Beatrice is saying, because I I'm a big Verhoeven fan. I think Black Book is like a great film. And <laughs> I I was very excited to see this film. Um, it was the most packed press screening at the New York Film Festival this year. Like, people were really out for this movie. And I was just halfway through it, I was overcome by how driven by dialogue the film is and just how much of this sort of bureaucratic power struggle overtakes the movie uh, from the, the visions, from the more kind of purely sort of satirical or cartoonish aspects of it which i thought should have been accentuated as opposed to being just sort of uh kind of a a, a banal uh uh kind of look for the for the film there were very few striking kind of moments or images that really popped for me and i just you know by the end i was kind of checked out to be honest and i'd actually like to see it again because I kind of missed a little bit of the ending.
1: Yeah, it may be that that's the most striking image in the film, I think, for a couple of reasons.
4: <laughs> but, okay. I mean, like, the, the
1: city burning on the hill and these women, like, looking at it, it's just, like, yeah. one of the only... I mean, the it, only times where that where there is, like, a, a spectacle, where it pulls back from... The ending is very from...
0: pure, also. I mean, there's something very, very wholesome about it. Um, I actually like the movie a lot more than everyone here, even though I put it kind of low on my personal list, but that's just because I liked other movies more. Um, It's not the movie that necessarily lingered out of the 20 on my list, you know, most powerfully in my mind. But all the things that you all are saying didn't work for you really worked for me, you know, I I also went in thinking that this was going to be this non-sploitation, you know, really spectacular and trashy kind of film. And honestly, I think that's partly because when it premiered at Cannes, everyone was just tweeting about mm-hmm. the, what is it, the cross being used as a dildo or, you know, this one scene and then you think oh this is what the movie is and the movie is surprisingly sincere it's very talky it's really more of a treatise than it is a you know sex exploitation or not it's really not about sex it's much more about faith and how we talk about faith and how we manifest faith and i absolutely was so taken by the fact that you never know where Benedetta is coming from and you know her visions also look so banal and they seem so cartoonish that you don't know if they're the product of desire or like she's Mm -hmm. seeing what she wants and she desires or they're actually coming from a higher place and the fact that that becomes more and more uncertain I felt like almost even undermined Verhoeven's critique of the institution because you're initially asked to kind of sympathize with benedetta and then it's not that i didn't feel like she was conning i i felt like the point was it doesn't matter it doesn't matter right. whether or not she has these visions whether her faith is true the thing is what matters is that she says that this is the world as she sees it and none of us can actually ever verify that so what is what sort of world does that allow her to create and even though there's like all these like the weird like corrupt you know, peop you know, people of power in this movie, it kind of equalizes all of them on the same plane with Benedetta in a certain sense. You know, all they have is their word and all we have is their word. So it was kind of like this movie that makes everything crumble, but at the same time it at the same time it it doesn't like completely disregard faith. You yeah, know, everybody's a something. con
1: man, right? And all the entire church is just like people playing mind games with each other.
0: And, but they're not all scammers, that's the thing, like, there's a strong degree of, like, I think, like, desire, the desire to make sense of the world and find your place in the world that also drives them. I mean, Charlotte Rampling's character can be really devious, but Mm -hmm. also really pitiful. And her her daughter, right,
1: her her sort of surrogate daughter, right, is very sincere in her (laughs) belief that Benedetta is a... A con woman. Yeah, I think that, and I think this, that the church is represented by these kind of stock characters, too. And the church itself, the narrative of the church being corrupt, of being filled with con men, is kind of a stock notion. And uh, it's played off of this sort of cartoonish faith that's manifested in Benedetta and her visions. And it is kind of an interesting... Yeah, I mean, I didn't...
0: It's also a very good pandemic film. I mean, yeah. it's maybe not the best... Recommendation right now, but it is a good I mean, plague. So. <laughs>
1: the the, uh, the plague scenes are a little bit like comical. Like, I mean, maybe dramatic don't know if it's moments is but, but, about yeah.
0: quarantining. You know, it's there's like, a lot
1: of guys <laughs> going like. like
0: there's more like, almost like a war people. over a city's like willingness to suspend its quarantine. So. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true.
3: I have to say, if like anyone felt disappointed by Benedetta and like wanted just like more craziness. Like, I recommend just watching Paul Verhoeven's Flesh and Blood, like his first Hollywood movie, which has so many of the elements in Benedetta. It literally has, like, plague, like, crazy sex scenes, like, um, people being arbitrarily led by, like, markers that are supposed to, like, signal, like, the word of Christ. Um, Anyways, that's my recommendation.
0: (laughs) All right. Let's keep moving so the number eight film of 2021 is?
1: What do we see when we look at the sky?
0: Have people here seen this one? No. Yeah. Okay, some some people have.
2: Is it out yet? Yeah, it came yeah. out. Yeah.
0: And it's going to be on Mubi in January, I believe. We, but it did have a theatrical.
1: We've rigorously researched whether or not all these films were released in 2021. Yeah. <laughs> and we can confirm that they were. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is directed by Alexander Koberidza. It's a Georgian film, and it's sort of this dreamy, romantic folktale about two lovers who become cursed and are, and their curse is that they look different from who they actually are, so they can't find each other anymore. And they wander throughout Kutaisi a Georgian City and engage in various jobs and games that they play. And the World Cup uh, is going on in the background. And there's just a lot of digressions that the filmmaker takes, follows dogs around. And, um, yeah, there's a disquisition on, like, the horrors of the world. That's great. A brief disquisition. A brief, yeah. Yes. But, uh, but uh, there's also an incredible scene of teenagers playing uh, pickup soccer to the, like, 1993... World Cup theme blasting over them as they as they sort of fumble around on a on a yeah. soccer court.
0: I have to say it's like pretty cool that this may, uh, this film made the top ten because it's Alexandra Kobaritsa wasn't really known in the mm. states before. It's his second feature, you know. I don't think his first feature ever really played here, and it's just had this. It played at the New York Film Festival and other major festivals, but I feel like it's had this amazing momentum behind it and word of mouth and people have just sort of fallen in love with it and I do think it took me a couple viewings I think to really appreciate it and it you saw
1: this movie a couple times
0: I saw it three times I saw it three times all right well
1: I think we have a winner folks
0: <laughs> But I think it's stylistically narratively it's doing something that I found really unplaceable you know, almost throughout the film, definitely there were there were moments where I was like, "No one else is really doing anything like this," and it wasn't. You you can tell that there's a lot of cinematic traditions that he's playing off of, but as a whole, there's, you know, I couldn't place it within any particular or you know a tradition or precedent. And yeah, I mean, it's also a really expansive movie. I mean, not just that it's long; it's like a movie with a an incredibly wide scope that manages to do so many different things and touch upon so many different things and do so many different things stylistically. And in terms of the writing, it's, it's quite impressive. How about our panelists?
1: Olga looks like he wants to say something.
2: I had, well, I want to make, make an observation. When we did the, uh, the festival panel, that was the film that just about everybody mentioned as like their favorite movie at the festival, which I thought was interesting. Um, I have a question for you. Why did you see the film more than once? <laughs> no, 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 uh, that's not meant to be like, oh, no, no, it's bad. Uh, but I'm for cur- work. No, uh, no, I'm, I'm, no, because I, I am curious.
0: No, actually for work due to okay. engagements that required me to revisit because I was doing like a panel or okay. a Q&A, but I enjoyed it. I mean, okay. I don't, I'm not a big rewatcher, so I yeah. maybe wouldn't have sought it out. But I have to say the first time I saw it was on my wall, like wall of my home with my projector during the Berlinale, which was virtual. And this is a big screen film. Like, I'm glad it's gonna be on movie, but it was, I was very lukewarm on it when I saw it that way. And then I saw it during the New York Film Festival, and the shots played so differently. I mean, there's one shot where there's like this iris cut. So, you know, the screen sort of shrinks. And then there's this little orb on screen, and you're looking at a piece of the sky and, you know, uh, parts of trees. And it goes from, like summer to fall, you know, in one second. Like there's just this kind of time lapse effect. And that was just amazing to watch on the big screen. And another scene where, where the uh, protagonists changed, you know, where they're afflicted by the curse and they wake up as new people, the the narrator tells the audience to shut their eyes and count to three and open your eyes again. And when you open your eyes, they're changed. Like these things worked so beautifully with an audience. And I think that really won me over.
1: I have to say, I don't I don't think it was one of my favorite movies at the New York Film Festival. I don't dislike this movie, but I do think it's kinda of, and as you're describing it in these and these scenes and moments that you're describing. It's a little too, it's a very twee movie, I think, for me. And I haven't seen it since Berlinale either. I didn't see it, and I didn't see it on the big screen. But it has moments that I think are like inc- the the opening sequence, I think, where they bump into each other and you only see their feet, and they drop. he drops a book and they pick up the book, I think is really incredible. But there's moments that are just a little bit too, I,
4: I, twee is the word that keeps popping into my head. I'm going to defend it, even though I also am not a big fan. It wasn't wasn't on my list, I don't think. I think the aspects of it that have a tendency to maybe superficially feel twee or cute or um, just a little kind of superficially romantic or romantic in a trite way uh, are grounded in this kind of folk cultural aspect of it, that it, it's clearly drawing on uh, Georgian folklore and poetry.
0: Silent Film. Well,
4: yes but yeah. the same could be said of like you know but they give it a Disney texture films. right they give sure. it, a, they give it a, a kind of distinctive flavor and I think that that's sort of what rescues the film from just being sort of uh, kind of pat in its notions of coincidental connection or things like that uh, in a way that for instance just to um, you know favorably compare it to a movie I really was not as into this year um, uh, like the worst person in the world I think is more open to that charge.
3: Yeah, I was not, like, really a big fan of this movie. I found it, like, really tedious. And, um, I mean, I'm, like, appreciating the way it's sort of presenting, like, the passage of time and, like, the ease with which we can just, like, forget something, like, the fact that these characters just, like, completely changed, like, bodies. And, you know, I I appreciate the sort of digressive, meandering quality of it. Um... And the fact that in this like fantasy world, Argentina wins the World Cup, which if you're like a soccer fan is like kind of a gag, but um, on a very gut level, it's just like not my cup of tea. I found it like tediously sweet. And like, also like despite this like digressive mode, I also felt like it was like overly plotted or like constructed in such a way that like the ending reveal, like it had no impact on me. Cause I was like, yeah, well that's gonna happen eventually they're going to turn back. So I don't know, nothing super intellectual to say about my dislike of it. Yeah. I think
4: it has real longueurs. There's just passages of the movie where I think you're supposed to be soaking up the atmosphere or the tone that it's going for. And I was very um, sort of, I found, I, I found myself sort of listing not, not really.
3: It's sort of like city symphony-esque a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, it, but but it without without the focused kind focused
4: of... on like cute
1: dogs, you know what I mean? Like, like not to like attack go too hard on this movie because I actually <laughs> like it I, and it was on my top twenty list. But there's something about it that is like a guy like a gruff voice narrator b- being like it's, it. Reminded me a little bit of like the you know what's the great adventure Milo and Otis type of type situation <laughs> where you have a, a narrator like saying and the dog goes down the street and then the dog is doing human like activities well, I, and well, that's I, that's, I, that's I think what is like yeah what is just like too. Saccharin, maybe a little it bit it is
0: a little saccharine but you know my reservation when I first saw the film was that it was a bit glib that its grand statements about cinema and the world were unearned mm-hmm. but watching it again I mean I think that the movie really kind of grapples with how do you like as an art how do you look at the world through the lens of art and cinema and have it be something meaningful you know I think it's really kind of, and that's what that one digression is about. That's what that ending, you know, um, ending monologue is about. Is like, you know, when people ask me, I think he says, in the future, what did you, what were you doing when all these awful things were going on in the world? And I'll say, I guess I made some movies. And at first that came off as glib, but rewatching the film, I felt like I could see the whole film grappling with that question. And I think it's open to a kind of twee because it's constantly minimizing itself. Even as I think it finds like really extraordinary beauty in this city and in this place that it recognizes has you know a kind of like this kind of complexity that cinema will only ever reduce
4: right and there's a distance that it uh, creates between yourself and the the characters so I don't yes it's a little it's it's a little oversweet maybe but i I, I find that it's never cloying. You're never you're never really pulled into this romance. There's no. I mean, yes, there's the, the the desire on just a structural level for these two characters to be reunited at the end of the film, but that's not really what the film to me is interested in. It's it's more about that's the string Doesn't and there's all really these pearls to it. hang on. I, I yeah, love that exactly. this is the most controversial <laughs> film.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should also like keep moving. But <laughs> but Bill, did, you wanted to say something?
2: Well, I was going to say that uh, you know. I liked all the film's digressions. It was that central story, quote unquote, um, did, didn't work for me. I, I mean, I, 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 I don't mean to say that it worked for me. Like, it's not like I'm not I'm not expecting it to be Notting Hill or something like that.
0: But but I thought that actually, like, fable. <laughs> so like, that's a film that uh, works for you. <laughs> so, so so so
2: so the 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 fable like movements of it. I actually thought he wasn't. He didn't handle those very well in terms of just even being able to kind of you know, convey the fact that these people have become other people. Like, I mean, again, I think you're right. That's the thing he's least interested in. But he has made a movie about that thing, so he should be a little interested in it. Um, I Actually, I, I think the movie is, is very sweet, and I kind of want to, like, live in that town. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of textural stuff that I think he does really well. I, again, I love well, the digression. Well, that's it three
0: the, times. I'm telling you, you'll feel the Well, that's why I was skin. asking you
2: because because I did after I saw it, I did think to myself, you know, I bet I'll love this thing if I see it again. Yeah. Um, but do you
1: think three times um, is the also ideal. It's like eight movie. hours
2: long. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay, it is two and a half hours long. Um, I also
1: this, there was another Georgian movie at Berlin that I saw uh, beginning, which didn't make my list, but I, I as you're talking about this. I'm thinking about how how they're somewhat similar. I mean, they're not similar because it's definitely not sweet, but in terms of, in terms of Please explain uh, yourself. Well, maybe not similar. There's something about it. I think that the, the, the the transformation maybe, maybe I can't explain myself, Mm, but. There is
0: a transformation, you're right.
1: And there's that moment in beginning when she's lying on the forest floor and this kind of like, you know, Primal power Or w- whatever it is Kind of overwhelms her And it's just a different handling of this Kind of s- spiritual I don't know folk, like uh, pow- The power of th- The Volk I guess than, than this movie I don't really know where I'm going with this But I do think beginning I just wanted to shout it out Because it actually I bumped it off of my list At the last second But um I think it was uh, uh didn't really get maybe as much yeah. shine as it deserved.
2: Did it actually did beginning play this year?
4: Yeah. Yeah it did. January.
0: Yeah, January. That's so very, very
4: early. So a virtual only release. Yeah. We'll to...
1: Okay, we're ready to move on to number seven on the countdown. And number seven is Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy by the birthday boy Raisuki Hamaguchi. I hope it's his birthday, right? Somebody it is that. his birthday, okay, yes.
0: Uh, I feel like, you know, you know you were going to see Hamaguchi on the, you know, a, a couple Hamaguchis. The question this, is, but... is this
1: the only Hamaguchi? Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we will have to wait. Yeah, to that's out. the
0: question. Who here is, I feel like Beatrice, you you had pretty high on your list, if I remember. I did. I, yeah. This is
3: actually my preferred of Hamaguchi's mm. 2021 releases. I won't talk about the other one now because it may or may not appear later but I mean I really love this film I think that there's this idea that like an anthology film is always going to be slighter than something like a three or four hour epic drama but um you know here I like I I just really love Hamiguchi as storyteller the way he constructs character the subtlety of it the way he's like exploring the like sort of inner lives of women and all their you know Murkiness and contradictions, um, all hinging usually on this idea of like the sudden upending or like the chance encounter, and you know this very much, you know plays with all of that, but in a way that's like very just like light on its feet and like bounding with like all of these narrative possibilities. Like it's it was just incredibly exciting for me. Hamaguchi is someone that's like very interested in you know rehearsal and like performance and and here these elements come through but they're they're not like explicit performances or rehearsals they're like people feigning or pretending to know something or like performing but within like actual like their actual like lived scenarios and like i mean i just thought that was something that was super interesting about this and as, in terms of my favorite one, I mean it's hard, like, but it's it's been kind of like a fun game for me and like my fellow Hamaguchi lovers to be like, What's what's your ranking of the stories here? Personally, mine is two, one and three, if that means anything to you all. So <laughs> you know.
1: This is also my favorite of the two Hamaguchi. Okay. I think from yeah, a lot of the same reasons. I also love that all of the stories are two characters talking to each other throughout i think all three stories right
3: two characters talking but it's always a triangle yeah
1: yeah yeah. i think it's really so there's like this interesting narrative constraint i I don't know if he put that on himself but Mm -hmm. you kind of wonder if he was like i'm going to make stories dealing with it was
0: made during the pandemic when Mm -hmm. the production of drive my car was stalled so i think there were some artificial restrictions that into the film in, in a productive way. But,
2: uh, the, the third episode was shot during the pandemic. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. so, so he shot the first two before the pandemic oh. as preparation for Drive My Car. Yeah. Uh, and okay. then he started shooting Drive My Car in March of 2020. <laughs> and, and then had to halt Drive My Car and then finished the third episode of this during and then after mm-hmm. the state of emergency was lifted. He shot, like, all the Hiroshima scenes of Dragon
3: There's a subtle reference to that in the third, because in the third one, they're, like, in this future pseudo-dystopia, but it's so subtle. It's just, like, they can't use technology. I think that's the conceit. Well,
2: if you notice, it's, like, totally empty. The world is totally empty. I think that's kind of... I actually thought the film was supposed to be progressing towards kind of the future in that way. But it turns out that was basically he was shooting during the pandemic and he couldn't have people around. So. And I
1: think in the third one, the third, that the third part of the triangle, it doesn't appear. Right.
0: That's yeah, the only that's one right. where that's you right. don't see. Yeah, the, uh... yeah. She's, well, they're like people who are spoken off, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I also really like this film. I think I've gone a little bit back and forth between about whether this is my favorite Hamaguchi. I did put it higher on my personal list, but... I also think we don't need to pick one. I mean, you know, it's we're lucky that he made two films in one year. I, I don't need to rank them. But I, I love this film. I won't, I feel like there's not much more to add. But the thing that I think he does really well is, you know, the films are always a little bit overwrought. I mean, he's just is someone who likes construction and likes plot. You know, likes all the art and craft of filmmaking, likes the art and craft of performance, of writing, all of that. And so there is always that like sense of watching like a movie. You know, there's a sense that everything has been carefully calibrated. Um But at the same time, when you watch the film moment to moment, there's so much like looseness and unpredictability in the interactions of the characters and in the performances. I mean, my favorite is also the middle story. And you really I mean, so such a big part of it is just the conversation between the student and the professor. She's kind of like trying to like honey trap or, you know, trying to seduce. And you just don't know where it's going to go. And it just plays off of like their faces and their intonations. And so, again, the story ends in this, like, pretty melodramatic, like, big way. Um, But the fact that this particular interaction manages to be so, I don't know, nuanced and minor key and constantly tripping you up, like, that's what he does so well and I think does really well in Wheel of Fortune. And, And that middle section, actually, I'm not a huge fan of the third section i like the first section quite a bit but the middle section to me is perfect and just kind of elevates the movie above so we've got two
1: steps.
4: second sections yeah middle section <laughs> so, <laughs> i think i'm the third section i don't know <laughs> i'm actually one i like one the most one is good too. and like two two second cover. and three i'm one two three Really, yeah, yeah i, so, I you like guys,
2: one and two about equally i, I Never occurred to me to
4: rank
0: them. <laughs> so, but, but, well, uh, yeah, I mean it's part the of the whole exercise. About... <laughs> I mean, I think what's
1: most fascinating about this movie is how they interact with each other when placed when placed in this particular order, and how as you think back through what you've seen, you start to kind of they start to kind of fit together in, in interesting ways and shine different lights on different elements of each story. Um, Edo, did did you want to talk about this
4: one? Uh, Not to put you on the spot. I mean, I I just really love his um, the way he, in a way, what Davidka was talking about with respect to his love of structure, but his ability to keep the action unpredictable moment to moment. The, there's there's a relationship to impulse and motivation in his work that's that always keeps you on your toes you're, you're it's just really refreshing particularly when most movies are telegraphing what the motivations of the character are in advance so that we understand what's happening and I particularly love that about his work and he's I mean it's just amazing to see someone kind of explode onto the scene with so much creative energy and ingenuity it's very rare and to, his work to me feels quite modern generationally in a way that i haven't vibed with for many many years yeah
1: i have something to say about him about hamaguchi's work but i'm gonna wait till maybe i'll maybe i'll have another opportunity uh, just give it away don't you i'm we might i might not have an opportunity so <laughs> you can talk to me after no. all
0: right the number six film of the poll is
1: the power, power of the dog, of the dog.
0: I know we have some Power of the Dog lovers on this panel.
1: And some haters.
0: And some haters. We're going to
1: get into it. So, who's who's a lover? Let's start with the lovers.
0: Bilga and Edo, for sure. Well, actually,
3: full disclosure, this is the one film I've not seen. Oh,
0: and Deniers. We have some. I have a Denier, but I will say,
3: just like, I mean, I haven't seen it, obviously. One, I I really, really love Jane Campion, but like, this is. Every year, I have like a film. I just feel like I need distance from like people talking about it because I want yeah. it to be like or my to come own. To the right place. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, so I'll probably actually wait like several, several months. However, my one skepticism is I like really hate Benedict Cumberbatch, and I don't believe that this is actually a good performance. But I see. believe, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, okay, down we're going to switch to haters. <laughs> it's
2: a very good. Performance for people who hate Benedict Cumberbatch, though, I will say. Uh,
4: yeah. I, I mean, I, don't, I am agnostic on Benedict Cumberbatch, generally. I'm st- I still haven't figured it out whether I think it's a good performance or not. Really? And I'm, I'm, I put this film very high on my list, well, relatively speaking. It's not high in my top ten, <laughs> but it's like high in the overall list. But I actually was kind of like Beatrice. I, 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 I love Jane Campion. And I have high expectations for this movie. It's probably my most anticipated movie this year. And I came out of it being really, I was very affected by the ending. The ending, I think, is, I think the ending totally works. There's a sort of twist ending. But I found the journey a little bumpy. And I wasn't sure about everything. And I've, I, David, I watched uh, What Do We See When We Look at the Sky three times. I've watched Power of the Dog three times because I keep on trying to figure out what aspect of the middle part of the movie is really just not working for me and so that's sort of where i am with it at the moment
2: well it's well,
0: like bilga's number one or two movie right so
2: uh no it's my number three or four.
0: Oh, okay well in the in there somewhere up there my
2: number yeah my number one and my number two are also in this yeah. list uh,
0: but okay
2: no i i i, I loved it i've I, i've seen it several times i think you know i mean she's a she's a filmmaker I feel like I grew up with and um, and it was it was great to kind of have her back on the big screen. And it is a big screen film, so if you do get a chance I mean, not, not just this moment maybe but like if you do get a chance to see it on a big screen um, do so. I think Cumberbatch is, Cumberbatch is not an actor I, I dislike, um, but he's been one of those actors who, you know, I've never quite understood why people love him but then occasionally he'll do something that I find interesting. And this one I think is perfect i mean uh, i don't want to give away too much of the movie but you know i mean there's something very performative about his part
1: have people um, seen this one i mean this has been yeah most
2: people have but um there's something very performative about his part um and i when i when i interviewed jane campion about it she said that she actually initially had doubts about whether he would be right for it but then she kind of realized that oh the fact that he is maybe not quite right for it is why mm. he's right for it and uh and i mean i think i think i agree um, and I do think that it's 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 much more you know like it does even though you know the central characters are, are male and and it's maybe a, a setting that is counterintuitive for for Jane Campion. I, I actually think it, it it's very much her movie, um, and it really does feel a, of a piece with with her other work. Um, and it, like in the way that she looks at these like kind of twisted relationships and, and can kind of find these incredibly oppositional figures and yet find the weird connections between them. I mean, something like Holy Smoke, for example, you know, like there's a weird, there's weird correlations between this movie and Holy Smoke and and this movie and The Piano, both of which I think of as maybe her most personal movies. So uh, I, think, I think, I think it's a lovely film. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy. I, I saw it early, early, earlier this year and I, and I was, because I, I loved it, but I was also wondering: like, are people going to embrace this movie? I mean, it's obviously coming with a lot of Netflix hype and things like that, and obviously they want awards and things like that. Um, so I was curious if if it would be em- embraced, and it seems to be, which is which is good, I think.
1: It is an incredibly beautiful movie, and definitely deserves to be seen on the big screen. I, but uh, and you said that Cumberbatch is very performative. Yeah, and I think that describing it that way kind of makes me appreciate his performance a little bit more. But I found it to be like very much sort of a pretty good John Wayne impersonation, down to like the walking, like the way he walks into rooms. I mean, to me, the other the other problem I had with this movie is the character, is Kirsten Dunst's character, who I think is like just doesn't seem Maybe to cohere a as a system. really. I mean, yeah. just doesn't really come together as like a character. For me, and seems to be sort of a plot contrivance, and like a and like a something that can be tossed back and forth between you know the young man Cody, what's his name? Cody Smith. Cody Smith, yeah, and uh, Cumberbatch's
4: character. I think. I'm going to disagree with you about the John Wayne comparison because John Wayne is a relatable figure in most of his movies and I think that the point of that, you know John Ford used to say that what he was looking for in his actors was relaxed relatable well, I don't think he was I don't think he evoked John Wayne I think he just like impersonated him like
1: vo- sure. vocally and in, in terms of his physical mannerisms
4: Yeah I just I found it very it's just such a it it's such a theatrical performance it's it's coming to me, out of like 19th century theater, and I wasn't really thinking of uh, of kind of classical western canons for the film, and actually that's kind of what I really liked about the film, was that it is gothic it is romantic uh, it's a Wuthering Heights story but it is in the west and I found that to be very consistent with Campion who, for whom Wuthering Heights is a, a kind of a, a you know, a large influence, a looming influence, and the film is set at around the same period as *The Piano*, but it is centered on a male character, and there is a piano in the film. Uh, is it the same piano? We'll never
1: know in that It is a in the Jane it Campion a, a baby cinematic out universe. In Netflix
0: is interactive Power of the Dog virtual <laughs> experience, which is a real thing. Uh, I'm sure you can go and click on the piano.
4: <laughs> but I was really moved by those aspects of it. And I was moved by the sense of mystery about people at this time. You know, how it must have felt to be uh, out on the limb in... The former frontier, because it's the 20s, so the frontier had could closed like 30 years before officially. Uh, but this feeling of being in an empty space, like all the entire the movie is a, a very spare movie, and that was different from other Campion films because Campion's films are so richly textured and so dense. And I found this to at first be kind of like, well. It's very cold. It's very kind of removed from everything. Everything is shot from a distance. And the camera moves in ways that are very kind of easily clockable. You're like, oh, this is the purpose of this camera movement. And in things like the piano or bright star, you're so immersed in the textures of things that you're, you're losing a sense of the motivation of the camera or the motivation of a cut or things like that. And this is much more easy to kind of kind of see the turning of the screw. And that threw me off. But at the same time, it builds towards this ending. And the ending, I, I think, is perfectly cal- calibrated and just executed. So I'm, I am I think it's a pretty great or formidable film. So uh, but it's six. not a film that's easy. It's not a film that's easy to figure out. So yeah,
0: you, you'd put it at number six. <laughs>
1: Collectively, we've arrived at this, at will, this ranking.
0: Yeah. Well, I will just say I won't talk much about it because we, we you know a lot has been said and this I is the have, problem
1: with these panels though is like yeah. t- each one of these movies you know is we can boring. talk about it yeah. for an hour i will
0: just say that i actually did not put this movie in my top 20 i firmly believe that this is a not good movie i after. believe
1: you said it was actively evil to me <laughs> i didn't because say I actively evil
0: i said it was actively bad <laughs>
1: okay actively bad
0: <laughs> and but you know i mean i think I understand why, why Bilga and Edo like it so much. I, I I, didn't think the performance by, as my friend who's an admirer of the film put it, Benadryl Commerbund, uh, worked. And I just found it way too schematic. I mean, I, I feel like I don't even have anything much deeper to say about it. I'm very surprised that you found this emotional resonance in the film because none of the characters ever felt like real people to me, except for that one scene when Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst share a moment up in the mountains soon after their wedding. And I was so hoping there would be more moments of grace like that. And so many co- characters, just both him and her characters just get lost in the wayside. And the twist is interesting, but it's it's not really done very well. I mean, there are moments that are really kind of gothic and in which you see the Cody character um, you know, he's difficult to place. He's very slippery throughout. That I think works, you know, and, and, but it,
1: also he doesn't totally like, you never, you, he also on some level is kind of contrived as like, a plot. He's, he's
0: part.
4: I don't by right. plot. I don't think that's right at all. And he's very yeah.
0: naked. Like his motivations are so naked. That scene when he's sashing through this, you know, this gathering and clearly, you know, you realize later to bait Benedict Cumberbatch's character. It's, Right at that moment, I knew what was happening. It was just so naked and schematic. And I think there's something with the rhythm of the movie that's off. I wonder if that has to do with the uh, the fact that it's a- adapting a novel. And it's, it's
1: interesting m- that it's number six on our on
4: our <laughs> on our <laughs> list here, and we're just
0: <laughs> and I'm like, it's not even number twenty. I mean,
4: uh, <laughs> I I can't no, but I, I don't agree about the Cody Smith character. I mean, I I don't agree about any of the characters. I think they're all pretty real mm-hmm. to me. Uh, I think they're all heartbreaking. Yeah, exactly. I, I think they're we all just like, have tragic. Stone here at the film comment <laughs> office. I, I mean, I, I think I'll cite Nothing
1: something that twee or you know romantic. In,
4: I'll enters. cite something that Manola Dargas said about the Cody Smith, Smith McPhee's performance as this character. Uh, she ref, she related him where she referenced that he kind of evoked for her Anthony Perkins in Psycho, and I thought that's totally right. There's an oddness to how he moves in the in the film. Uh, a queerness, if you if, if yeah, you but will, that's t- and and twenty
0: twenty one like those gestures of queerness aren't that potent to me anymore.
4: I I don't you know to to me it's striking in a film set in nineteen twenty five to deal with a, a character like that and to film them at such remove. There's always a a distance that he's placed from us at. And I mean, he's particularly good. the hula hoop moment or the moments when he's walking in the desert and we're not really sure why and and then also. Uh, kind of his relationship to his mother, which I found to be the most intriguing aspect of the movie, of, of, or at least of their relationship, of, of the, kind of that side of the movie, was that I think, you know, people who have just kind of written about the movie in a superficial way have kind of tended to assume he just loves his mother and he's doing it to protect his mother, but he refers to his mother by her name, mm-hmm. or her first name, and he never actually seems to uh, be very responsive to her emotionally, uh, he cares about her in a particular way, and I found that very uh, like a, a real kind of hint into. I mean, I think the nature of his character. Yeah, I think that the movie, there are
1: these relationships. Also, Jesse Plemons' character sort of dissolves midway through. But you know, these relationships between these side characters are almost more interesting to me, and I wanted those to be more developed, maybe. And I think like this, this like battle of wills between Cumberbatch and Cody. Smith, Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. McPhee. McPhee, Smith, McPhee, Cody, Smith, McPhee. Okay. It's a, it's a tough one for me.
0: Where did Ryan come from? I don't know. <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm just making it, pulling it out of thin air. I think that that, that sort of battle of wills was maybe like, seemed more schematic or fits more into this. Like you kind of see where it's going. Whereas like you, when the film was in these opening moments and these first interactions between the characters, you don't really know where this romance is going to go between Jesse Clemens and Kirsten Dunst. You don't really know who, this, who Cody Smith-McPhee's character is going to be or what he's going, you know, what his, he, he's studying to be a doctor. There's all these. Yeah. And then it just kind of goes towards this thing that I was less interested, that just seemed like, and discarded a lot of what I found to be interesting along the way.
0: I do think we but should But we keep, we have to move on. We, we the power of the
1: dog on. is quite powerful this. Yeah. And <laughs> it will generate many conversations.
0: You're listening to the Film Comment podcast.
1: On the countdown is Days. Siming Liang's Days.
0: I so I know Bilga, you love this film.
2: I, I have not seen this film. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Bilga hasn't seen it. I know that actually I don't know, uh I don't know, Beatrice, if it was on your list. I know that Edo, me, and Clint all all love this film.
3: Um it was on my list. Siming Liang is like a modern master, so it's like there's always I mean, whatever comes out with it's like going to be like kind of some like the best filmmaking of the year unless he makes Um, a
1: western about um, right with benedict
3: cumberbatch (laughs) um uh but like i will say like that this is i i don't think this is like the height of his filmmaking um i mean granted he's his body of work especially in like the past decade has been absolutely astonishing so like high bar there um but i mean this does this is like very fascinating in that to me it's like a culmination of his you know just his love his fascination with uh li kang shang like the way this film explores um that actor's body and and presence is just like i mean i don't really know how to get into it on a deeper level it's it's like astonishing and um you know. it really
0: is like um, I've, every time I've tried to talk about this film or write about it it really challenges like my ability for articulation it really is yeah. a, a film about the body and about sensation and a lot of kind of ineffable relationships that we have with, with people and things and uh, I'll just say this I mean I, I ranked it very high on my list I I actually I I, I think all his work stands on its own, I think this is up there. I think it's a different direction, but I think it's up there. I think it is, to me, everything I I wanted and expected from a Psy film, and yet sort of unsettlingly different in in certain very specific ways. And I'll just say, the first time I saw this was at the 2020 uh, Berlinale, and was right before the lockdowns and everything. So it was one of the last films I saw on the big screen before the pandemic. And the opening shot is a five-minute shot of Lee Kang-sheng staring out of a window. It's raining. Yeah, it's this. Yeah, this is. (laughs) But this is five minutes. And you're just watching him. You're just watching the inflections on his face. You're just watching. You're just listening to the sound of the rain. And it it was just this transcendent experience in this theater. That tsai hing liang and Lee Kang-sheng were also in that theater. And of people like a minute passed and then another minute passed i think people started to wonder if like there was something wrong with the projection or if the movie was stuck people started to like look around somewhat you know people started to fidget and slowly you could like sense this collective realization that we're just being subjected to this like pretty incredible incredible act of duration and you could then see the restlessness settle down and people get lulled into the rhythms of the movie and that's just like this incredible kinesthetic experience that that is what like this movie is. And then I've just for since watching it, it's just lived in my bones and my muscle, you know, like that, the way every scene, whether in terms of its duration or whether, whether just its size ability to capture faces or bodies with just Mm -hmm. this, it's, it's not even precision, but with this rawness, but that still seems sort of distance that doesn't try to reveal, you know, there's just some kind of uh, like looking at, at at a stone until it becomes something else. That kind of, you know, that kind of approach. Um, anyway, I feel like I'm like becoming I, like I a blubbering. Like this,
1: yeah, yeah <laughs> I, the word like distillation keeps popping into my head because I think it's a sort of a. This film was like a return to the cinema for him from a, after years of working in, and in installation and, and gallery work and. A lot of that work was very much durational, and I think he—I mean, his work. It's not that this is the first time he's featured a, a very long static shot, but this film is very much adheres to that long static shot so formula. It's about
0: aging too, and yeah. so time is just. And, a and you get this kind of
1: distillation yeah. of time. You experience it, and you experience this person's heartbeat and their. Uh, it's the sensations of wind on on his skin as you as you if you you know as you pay attention to what's happening on the screen you start to notice the reflections in the window the trees the the breeze ha- the breeze you know blowing through the trees and it, it's a, it's yeah unlike say the uh, irish shot in um i I want to call
4: it i know what you did last summer <laughs> what do we see when we look at the sky <laughs> It's also a distillation on a narrative level yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's Thank his, you for saving me and and on a pictorial level, it's his least adorned film, and Simon Liang is not a filmmaker of adornment to begin with, and I was uh, not expecting this when when it when I saw it i I just felt that it was uh i it was one of the most moving experiences i'd had in the theater well it wasn't in the theater it was in the drive-in brooklyn drive-in uh during the 2020 new york film festival and uh on a personal note i had severe back pain the worst oh, of no. my life at the time that i watched this film which is a kind of common theme in simon yang's films with lee kang shen and it's actually just a theme of, of lee kang shen's life uh, is that he has these unexplained neck and back pain that he has been seeking treatment for, uh, in medicinal treatment, and folk remedies, and uh, never had real relief from. Uh, and I've just felt it really kind of pulled me into his biorhythms. And I... I yeah, I... Words really don't suffice to. Is days, it? Act, is days a direct translation of the title, or is that the original? Yes. Yeah, I believe so. But I think it can be plural or singular. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah,
0: yeah and um, I, Erica Balsam wrote a really good piece about this for Art Forum where she talked about the depiction of pain, how powerful pain is to experience you know it's something that can really destabilize your world, but how hard it is to communicate yeah. if you've ever been in a doctor's office and they say like you know rank your or put a number to your pain you know it's a this impossible task because it it's something unrankable unqualifiable, and I think what's so moving and gorgeous about this film is you're watching Simon Liang witness someone he loves and has loved for years, you know his muse experience pain and aging and there's nothing really that you can do I mean there's things you there's nothing you can do really to relieve someone of their pain or the passage of time in a real way I think that's where the lack of adornment comes from it's just the film is an act of witnessing and the fact that you know that it's this filmmaker and this actor lends it such I won't don't want to call it heartbreak because I think it's a film with a lot of grace and 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 love it it doesn't strike me as you know sorrowful but there is something very poignant
3: yeah i mean to me like when i think of side just think of like yearning and this film is definitely like you know the act of yearning and like navigating modern life but like but yearning as something simultaneously like debilitating and self-sustaining like it's i don't know it's a lot, <laughs> but in
4: in the previous films or earlier films, the, that yearning has like a historic character or a mythic character. There's family relationships that are involved. These kind it's of archetypal, yeah, yeah, family relationships between fathers and sons or um, mothers and sons or partners, yeah. things like that. And this this is not that this this feels like it's given a character that um, I don't want to say, universal, but it's just, it's really stripped down. It's really just the immediate relationship. If yeah.
2: Not and it depicts
1: pleasure as well, in addition to pain. I mean, yeah, and it's, in, you know, in the same form. Yeah. Using the it's exact same yeah, sex techniques.
0: M- sort of massage and sex scene when he encounters this younger man, which is, yeah, another very kind of the psychosomatic scene that has, I think, stayed with me. I think we should move on. I think we're all pretty... Pretty Most, much in agreement. Good film.
1: <laughs> number four is Annette. Annette. Leo is totally Are people here insane. Fans?
2: Oh, no, okay. Bad,
1: okay. no fans. Oh, we How many people fan? have seen it? <laughs> That's a pretty good number.
2: All
0: right.
1: So only a few fans. <laughs> I think the whole panel has seen it. Correct.
0: And I think the whole panel likes the film a lot, based on what I know of everyone here.
2: I love it. It, it was my number one movie of the year. That so, was uh, your number
0: one. Okay. Bill yeah, Kugler. your and
1: your review was... Yeah, Vilka's
0: sure. piece on it was really wonderful. Do the honors, Vilka.
2: Well, I wrote, I wrote two pieces on it. <laughs> so, um, well,
0: you reviewed it out of Canada. I, I, I
2: did a review of it, and then I wrote a piece specifically about the, 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 the ending scene. You know, it's... it's and, I, and I've said this before, but I, I was actually surprised that it wound up being my number one movie because when I first saw it I didn't know whether I liked it or not um I knew that it had there were parts of it that moved me greatly but it's such a I mean it's such a wild movie at least I think it's such a wild movie and kind of in some ways tries to do so many things that there were you know when I first saw it I was like like is it even working and but then by the end I was just completely in tears I thought okay something worked so Mm. and I, I knew I wanted to see it immediately I mean the thing I always say is a movie you have to see more than once should be a movie you want to see more than once. Like a film should make you want to see it more than, even if you didn't love it the first time, there should be something about it that pulls you in. Cause you see a lot of films where people like, you see it again. And I'm like, but it didn't make me want to see it again. And that's right. different. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I've, I've now seen Annette like seven times <laughs> um, and just
0: because you wanted to see it or. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Wow, I mean, okay. like one of them was specifically for that piece. I, yeah. the, the second piece I wrote, but, no, I just couldn't stop watching it. Um, and a film that's that infectious and ultimately that powerful, I, you know, I, there's still parts of it that don't entirely work for me, but I was like, mm. there's no way I can't make this number one. Like no film has moved me this much this year, which is kind of nuts because I mean, it's a pretty crazy film, <laughs> um, and a really dark film too. Um, but I do think that you know there's like method to its madness and and I do think that for for all its kind of wildness there is like it's building up to that final scene yeah. with with the real Annette um uh, and and once she kicks in once she starts singing it's it's like it's just and all it's,
1: cool. totally it's just uh, the, the, I mean, open the floodgates this this movie, I also walked out of the theater and just like uh immediately like burst into tears and, and I wasn't sure why yeah. Um, I, I, I think this movie's uh, I think I agree with everything you said so far I think that there's a lot of parts of it it's, that don't necessarily work but because it's just driven by this I guess the, the relationship between the father daughter relationship is really at the core of the movie is what I'm trying to say and I think that that's like so depicted so sincerely and that it's really just like overwhelming overwhelming all the uh, the stuff that doesn't work
0: and I what doesn't, I mean, what doesn't work, I mean, yeah, what, I, what work, I, mean,
1: yeah I, I, what doesn't work is that like Sparks, I find somewhat obnoxious. <laughs> um, I love, I love Sparks too, but like, I don't listen to Sparks that much. So, uh, because sometimes they, like, I think they're on, obnoxious on purpose often, but, um, yeah, that's, but the music still like, yeah, I mean, it, it made it operatic to yeah. <laughs> It melted I, my heart of stone
3: I'm well yeah, I well,
0: loved... and I ran into each other on our second watch of the film, so we're oh remember. right yeah. yes,
3: I mean, I like love this movie an obnoxious amount um I don't think i I think I had it at number two, but that was like not real like it should honestly just be my number one um I've also seen it like five times in theaters, and I also like I interviewed Leos, and then I wrote a piece on it. Just in print, unfortunately, so no one's read it. So. Um, but, I mean, like, it's weird because I have complex feelings about it because I understand, um, you know, why people might not vibe with it. Like, I get it. Henry McHenry is, is, is not funny. <laughs> um, you know, the Sparksian irony, um, the cynicism. Like, I get that, but, like, you know, when I entered the film, like, I was just completely swept up in, like, the sort of romantic fantasy of it. I I mean, like, Leos Caraxe has always been somebody that, whose films are very much about, like, brooding, dark romance. And, like, here, I mean, it's obviously, like, hearkening to just, like, classical cinema. I mean, it's, like, the characters are, like, archetypes. It's, like, the damsel in distress, the, like, toxic evil man. Like, these are not real people. Um, but, you know, what I find really interesting about um, Laos in this era of, like, digital filmmaking, which he began, like, with Holy Motors, and that I think he really fine-tunes here, is that, like, he's very much leaning into uh, the, like, ability of digital technologies to create, like, an obnoxiously artificial world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, the film is, you know muddied digital backdrops like obnoxiously vibrant colors you know that on top of the fact that you know well these are archetypes and um uh you know they're singing their lines and the lyrics are like repetitive and often direct pronouncements of like their characters thoughts and feelings so you know this is very much an artificial world um And yet, like, and I think that this is like the significant touch for me, Um, you know, with baby Annette, this puppet, it's like inviting us to um, acknowledging the fact that this is an obvious fiction, like this is artificial, this is fake, and like baby Annette is so clearly not a real baby it's asking us to acknowledge that but then somehow still connect to this obvious fiction to like invest real emotion into it to like you know believe that something like baby annette is true and like capable of yielding like genuine emotion connection i mean to me that's kind of like our investment in art itself i mean like we go into the movie theater completely knowing that this is an obvious fake world and yet like it will still make us cry like we can still be entirely invested in it so I mean I can go on about this film but I'll read I Beatrice's it.
0: piece <laughs> in print no, um, of yeah <laughs> I, I mean I really agree with what you're saying and I had the kind of uh, the same reaction in a maybe slightly different way which is I was thinking about the exchange in Holy Motors, the only exchange that feels like it's giving us some, shedding some context to what's happening in that film, which is in the limousine. And, you know, Denny Levant says something. I mean, there's this exchange about the audience now being invisible or, or something, you know, and then you, that's when you get the idea that this is a performance and someone is watching, but that someone has become distilled into the world in some way. And I, I just find these images of the crowd, you know, that, that film opens with and this and Carax loves the film the crowd and it's something he, he references very explicitly in *Annette*. so this like act of spectatorship that runs throughout the film the Henry McHenry scenes I, I, I don't think he's supposed to be funny I think he's supposed to be cringe but The genius of those scenes to me is that the audience has this canned laughter, right? There's this kind of musical laugh track. So you have this disconnect where you're like, this isn't funny, but you almost feel like you have to join in to the laughter because that's what is expected of you. And that's what the laugh track and the music makes you feel like you need to do. And so there's this throughout the movie, I think, and that's why as a musical, it works so well is everything is sung right but the lyrics are very ironic and they're very kind of prosaic I mean one of the main songs is like we love each other so much that's the refrain we love each other so much but the fact that it's it's sung gives it like a grandeur and so this like this collision between this kind of grandeur and this banality and also this feeling of artificiality not just because of the pu- puppet and the wall, but the way the words are su- sung there's this way in which you know living in a modern media world feels like everything that you feel or respond to a piece of art with is always already anticipated like you can sometimes feel like you can't have a new feeling or reaction to a work mm-hmm. of art it's already anticipated it's already monetized even if you hate something that's like mm-hmm. you know that's what like hate watching comes from even if someone does something really problematic or bad? It's already part and like part of this like capitalist like um, you know system, and so it, it sometimes feel like you live in this like marketplace of emotions, you know, where everything is everything you feel is quickly traded into the system. And I think the movie captures that kind of nihilism of living like that so astutely and specifically, but also not without feeling like it still feels Mm. saturated with feeling, you know, it's just that that feeling can be hollow Mm. and I just came away from it feeling completely empty, but also completely suffused. And Mm. that's not an experience I have with movies very often. It felt so contemporary to me, that Mm. reaction that I had.
4: Yeah. it's also it's it's like a movie of high artifice, but no illusionism. The artifice isn't hidden at all. And of course that's underlined by the fact that Annette, the, the daughter is a puppet, and I. And this is kind of cl- classic Karak's in that sense. It's post-Gadar. He's, you know, he, he. I was curious about this one. I was fascinated by this one in that it it is his most pop movie the, with the relationship with the Sparks, but it maintains this almost kind of documentary refusal to at all kind of elevate what he's showing you into an uh, illusionistic spectacle. So, you know, the singers, the actors, who are not singers, they're not, uh, tr- I'm, I'm actually not sure whether Adam Driver is a trans singer or not, Mayan Cotillard is, but they're not, they're not opera singers, they're not musical theater singers, they are singing everything. And they're, uh, they're singing, it's all shot live, it's not post-dubbed. And you feel, you feel in your body, the physical exertion and exhaustion that it takes. Plus he gives them things to do while they're singing that even trained singers would have trouble doing. Like there's this extraordinary sequence where Marianne Cotillard is smoking at home, goes to the bathroom and she is singing the entire time. And I, I was just... I mean, it's kind of a tossed-off sequence. It's one of these things that doesn't seem virtuosic, but it is. I mean, it's just so, like, effortless, but effortful at the same time. And so that aspect of it, it, it kind of, you know, forces you to run the marathon with the characters. We before love it. Yeah. Before we move on, <laughs> yeah, I just think that this art, this, uh, this artifice that you're talking about,
1: it's just making me. F- I hadn't thought of this before but it is really just like and yes it's a rock opera but it's like going to the opera and you sit you sit in this theater you're really (laughs) far away from the stage everything is super fake and yet at the end you cry like and the you know the the libretto is very simple and straightforward so that everybody can understand and the singers can hit you in the back row but um yeah this movie really takes that and does something really incredible um, let's move on to, So,
0: well, what, now that we have three left, I'm wondering oh, yeah. if people have further guesses, like, what do All you right, think of number three? three? Uh, t- <laughs> <Close>. <laughs> you really know Close. from comment well. <laughs> Num- for number three? Okay. okay
1: we got a memorial.
0: If that's not, we didn't count that as a 20 uh, 20 movie. Just Hasn't so, released a 20, 20 yet. Movie, just so you know. Yeah, it was not. Yeah,
1: yeah, a yeah. 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 yeah he he saw it at Howard Beach. Yeah. Yeah. I
2: see it for a second time. I because yeah. I left at 12:30 and was home by two. Or no, I left at 11:30 and was home by two, and that's like not even not happening, yes, the last half Yes, I must be right. It was.
0: Yeah, well, it was an, the qualifying run was announced too late for us to be able to include it. So it'll be. It has not year's. been dissed. It we just simply did not count it. It may it may
1: not make the list, but
0: all right, let's let's, let's reveal let's it. Let's
1: reveal it. Yeah, let's pull back the the curtain and gaze upon pick number three. The souvenir part two by
0: even I forgot that this Joanna was number Hawk. three. I was like, "What is number three?
1: Yeah, I forget it. Yeah, basically all of them, and it's, it's all incredibly surprising to me every time <laughs> I, I see them. <laughs> souvenir part two was maybe not the highest on my list. This is higher than than I had put it on my list, but it, I think it is like a really remarkable film.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I, I really love the movie. It's grown on me. Mm-hmm. I. I mean, it wasn't in like my top four or five, but it has grown on me a lot. I was surprised so many people voted it very highly. Obviously, that's how it ended up at number three. But um, I think a lot of people were very moved by it. And I was not the hugest fan of The Souvenir when I saw it. But then when this came out, I watched all of Joanna Hogg's movies and I watched The Souvenir part one and part two. Like I rewatched them back to back. And it, the the arc is really quite... I think yeah. um it's- the arc between the two movies is really stunning and the fact that this death is the sen- is the midpoint not the end point you know I think that lends a kind of shape to the two movies and to the second movie that um I thought was It is kind of minor key. I think that's why it took so long for it to settle in. You know, it's kind of a low-key movie. And its pleasures are easy. You know, it looks beautiful. (laughs) It's
1: got cool music.
0: It's got cool Cool music. It's got, like, attractive men. You know, it just (laughs) kind of is like a very... And it's it's also a lighter, softer movie than the first one. Because Mm. the first one is about this tortured relationship Julie has with an addict. And this movie is about her kind of making her film and making the film that Joanna Hogg made at the end of her uh, college career. But I think the movie really wrestles with what it means to, first of all, what it means to make a life, make a film about oneself and what kind of truth claim you have to your own experience. And I think it wrestles with how that interacts with the sense of privilege and class and, and the particular world that Julie occupies, you know. And I think the death of this lover gives her sort of the first event of her life that might seem cinematic or dramatic, you know? Until then, she's lived this very sheltered, uh, you know, bubble-like life. And so then this becomes the subject of her movie. But then even making a movie about someone you loved who died in a tragic way is not necessarily your own to make a movie about. And I think the whole movie becomes this, this, yeah, negotiation with that realization I think it's quite fantastic in the way that it shows her it never she's likable but she's also very incompetent and the fact that it manages to show that is it's very touching to me you know she's very ordinary and the movie never tries to make her anything more than ordinary she's not a creative genius she's clearly not like a super skilled director on the set but she's also not pitiful you know she seems like ordinary in a very endearing way. Um, and I think those those kind of notes are hard to hit.
1: Throw it to the panel.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a really big fan of Joanna Hogg, um, but I wouldn't say this is like really my favorite of her films and neither is The Souvenir. I think for me, like favorites are probably um, like Archipelago, or uh, exhibition. Um, but I was really impressed because by this because I, I really feel like she's doing something very, very different here than her last four features while still retaining a very, like, hoggs core, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I mean, like, there's the way that she's, like, imparting this, like, psychology of her characters, their anxieties, like, the class tensions and, like, visually, you know, the way she plays with depth of field and, um, you know, the intricacy of her interiors. I mean, this is all masterfully done but like here there's like a flurried sense of time there's like the needle drops there's you know a bit more of a lightness to it which you know is simultaneously a departure from her like heavier last four features but then also kind of comes full circle to like her first student film in the 80s caprice which starred tilda swinton which is like very much um Uh, like an homage to her love of movie musicals and pop music and so I mean
0: and which is kind of I wouldn't say parody that's
3: pastiche in in this film yeah. yeah um so I mean I I liked it a lot not my favorite but I love how it is expanding the Joanna Hogg universe
0: I just want to add, my number one movie of the year is actually the one scene in this film when Richard Ayode says, did you resist the temptation to be obvious? That is my favorite cinematic moment of the year.
4: (laughs) I uh, am not as big of a fan of this film, although, uh, like Beatrice, I'm a big fan of Joanna Hogg's previous work. I love the souvenir. I love exhibition. Um, But I... I will agree that it's beautifully textured on a sonic level, on a visual level, and it is has this lovely quality of being kind of formally very uh, uh, kind of heterogeneous. There's uh, kind of films within the film. They're not just the uh, reconstruction or re-envisioning of Caprice, but also the uh this musical that richard Iote's character is, is 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 kind of abortively shooting and uh then this music video that she shoots at the end of the film uh there is the film itself being made uh and so all of that aspect of it i was pretty taken by i was less gripped by it um as a kind of emotional journey or arc for the character. I just it felt a little diffuse to me and unmotivated and uh especially in that uh it moves into this period of the film where she's making her her thesis project and uh, it seems like this is going to be a struggle and then all of a sudden uh it's the movie's done and I I was just things like that tripped me up. It there there were things that Where it felt like the emotional struggle that she has is not really earned in the same way that, in for instance, the souvenir, what she goes through is, you know, very kind of scrupulously documented at every point. Every every beat of it is lived through, and uh, this one felt perhaps because it's not quite based as closely on something that actually happened, and there's a little bit more of there's aspects of wish fulfillment to it to me um, that one it didn't really like kind of earn its stripes by the end
2: I was I'll say uh, you know I love Joanna Hogg and I love The Souvenir this is probably my least this is a film of hers I've, I've liked mm-hmm. the least um, and I think part partly is you know and I keep wanting, it's another one of those films I keep thinking I really need to see it again because I think I, I would groove to it more a second time but I think it's kind of what you're saying like the, the, the grief feels weirdly hollow, which it should not. I mean, given how powerful the souvenir you know, was. The, yeah.
0: The, what the film made me really, and this is why what I liked about it, it made me wonder if this is this is a narrative expectation that we have, that grief must be earned, that art making must be a struggle, that if, if, she's, if we see Julie struggling in one scene, then we must see the culmination of that struggle before we see the movie being made. And the... I think the film is really like thinking about how do you make a movie about life without reducing life's simplicity, without collapsing them into narrative.
3: Maybe okay. her grief is hollow because she's just comforted by all that money.
0: <laughs> See, but I, I find that criticism so glib because no, I, I don't definitely. think like I don't think the film is apologist. I don't I, I don't even think the film is like. Neither is it oblivious to her privilege, nor is it trying in any kind of cloying or cringy way to make apologies for it. Yeah, I no, think it's very I agree. aware. I was being annoying. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I feel like it, it's just very aware of what it means to live a life of privilege, and then to, you know, come up against certain ideas of art. There is all there has always been this like relationship between privilege and art, where privilege often is what you know, produces art, but it preys on privation or deprivation, you know? So I think without trying too hard, the movie does explore that particular contradiction really well. All right. The number two movie. Oh, wow. Drive My Car. So we all already talked a lot about Hamaguchi. I think one sentiment that was being repeated a lot was that, uh, people our, our panelists liked wheel a little more than this I will say I have also felt that way for a big part of this year since seeing drive my car but I revisited it recently and I wrote a little bit about it actually for our um, for our like top 10 wrap-up and it really that's when I decided to stop bothering with ranking the two movies and it also kind of, I think when I first saw Drive My Car, there are bits of it that are very schematic. I think, you know, it's very hard to ignore those bits, especially toward the end. There are bits that are just like overly plotted and there's just, it's, there are, it's kind of, you know, overwrought in, in, in some instances. But yes, it's such a film of such epic scope that I feel able to dislike some of its aspects and still come away feeling like this is truly masterful and yeah. this is so accomplished. And I think that's rare. That's, it's rare for me personally that I can say some things don't work and yet, as a whole, the film works beautifully because the film is doing so <coughs> much.
4: And, and when you say some things, one of those things is, I, I mean, I think you're probably thinking of this, the ending the climax of the film, which I agree, I don't think it really works. I think it is entirely overwrought. And yet, I was pretty underwhelmed by this too when I first saw it. I, there was so much hype coming out of Cannes. And I saw it at the New York Film Festival and was like, hmm, okay, it's really good. It's kind of everything I expect of Hamaguchi after Asuka 1 and 2 and Happy Hour. It's just so immaculate and you know, unpredictably constructed. But I was just sort of not, it didn't, didn't blow me out of my seat. And then I went back to see it again. That's of all the films that I saw at New York Film Festival or just this year, it was the film I most wanted to see again. And I was like entirely moved by it and just think it, it contains multitudes and it's just a very, very special film that like truly rewards revisiting and, uh, you know takes you on a journey that uh, the sense of time almost becomes like a an ethos or like a a a, a, new, a new way of seeing or appreciating a being alive and I think that's just kind of irreplaceably precious in a, in a in a film
2: I, I think it's a I mean I think it's a monumental movie um, and I think that one of the things that I really appreciate about his work, um, and this really, I mean, it's evident from the films too, but talking to him, um, I mean, interviewed him a couple of times, it it really, you know, he he cares so much about making sure that the audience sort of understands these characters, and he takes so much care. You know, the, the films don't feel, you know, they're not particularly formalist, they don't feel particularly, like, fussy, but he is a very fussy filmmaker, um, but he's able to express that, and uh, like, but, but what comes out is so kind of gentle and freeform, and you sort of it never feels the...
0: improvised or yeah. you know free in that way. But it is fluid. I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's There's, quite uh, I mean,
2: it's it's like it's it, there's a kind of alchemy that happens there. some filmmakers are able to do that, and some filmmakers try and fail. But the the like the sense of like simultaneously total control and a sense of total freedom within like. The experience of watching the film, I'm just like, I'm flabbergasted when I when I see that. It's just like, how does he do that? Like, it's you know, it's 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 really it's really magical. Um, and you know, we were talking earlier about um, the, uh, the the way that he shot it during the pan. You know, it's interesting because he has that final scene set during the pandemic, but actually most of the film was shot during during the pandemic, and. Originally, it was supposed to, you know, the, um, the setting uh, was supposed to be Pusan and, and he wound up, you know, wound up being Hiroshima because they couldn't travel abroad. Um, and like what that brings and he was totally aware that he was like, well, we're going to Hiroshima. That's the whole thing. Um, but the, just the, the ease with, with which that is integrated into the film and just enhances it so much and makes it that much more powerful. You, you'd never guess that that was not, that was like a thing that they right. have to just like added.
0: And the fact that that um, is referenced at the end of this film as this rupture, right? I mean, it's just, there's this unexplained change of location and, you know, and, if you didn't know this background, it probably doesn't really make sense. But the fact that he's willing to give in to this rupture at the end of a film that, again, feels so whole, it's so fully formed, and then something completely inexplicable happens. That's what really struck me when I was trying to write about it, which is that there is so much, there are so many moving parts to this film that that it's such an, like, elegantly designed film, but it's never afraid to get to those moments of, like, something ineffable or something unexplained.
4: just <clears throat> isn't spoiling anything to just clarify that that, what David is referring to is the fact that this last scene takes place in Korea. So anyway.
0: without any, without context. any. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just very, he's, it's very organic. It's, it's, you know, that, that uh, efficiency of design is like the efficiency of design of a tree or something, you know, like it mm. seems like it, uh, but it's not, you know, it's, he made it. Or somebody, so, you know, he and his crew and his actors made this. Um, it's godlike. He's godlike. <laughs> <laughs> who, who
4: else could make a tree? <laughs> Thank you, love. H- uh, yeah. Hiroshima seems like so essential to that the port of the movie, the part of the movie that it it it's the dominant setting. So it it's really jarring too once once you learn that that was a. Kind of last-minute production change, but it's
1: you know it's and I think more of it is like novelistic and like you know it's like a there's a it's it meanders it seems to meander, but it's really I don't know yeah you're right it's it's remarkable how it's like seems you think of it as digressive and meandering but it's really like
4: pretty laser. But in a way, way it said it's best when it's like that, and it said it's worst once you know where it's going, and that's. Kind of the
2: well, and, and like the the thing in the film also where um, you know where he's rehearsing the actors and he's like forcing them to, to read their lines without any emotion and he's mm-hmm. like very ruthless about that, and it's very integral to the film. It feels integral to the film. And when I interviewed him about, about it, he was like, you know, I didn't know anything about theater directing, and I went and like researched it and I talked to people to sort of make it work, and I finally realized I just. I still didn't feel like I really understood it, so I just replaced it with my own way of directing actors. Like, that's just the way he directs actors, mm. so he just inserted it into the movie, and it's just like this magical, you know, it's like one of those people who, like, they'll, you know, um, like a sculptor who can just kind of very quickly, you know, sculpt something, and it's like, seems totally perfect. Um, I mean, that's, you know, it's that, that's the the mark of a true artist. Um, a god, even. A god, if, yes. A god among uh, the <laughs>
0: That, Hamaguchi. Um, the, um. Uh,
1: uh, th- I did have a thing that I wanted to say about Hamaguchi, which is that I have a friend who pointed out to me that he is uh, the great contemporary chronicler of the middle class. And uh, this is just an idea that I kind of wanted to introduce. Uh, and because I, you know, there's something also about his work. Like this, I prefer uh, Wheel of Fortune to Fantasy because I really, it kind of lays bare the narrative guts in a way like or maybe the structure because guts isn't it's it is very lean and and uh and beautiful and you know guts are kind of gross and um but yeah I think that this movie in particular seems to be really kind of like yeah middle class (laughs) like about this kind of milieu and I think this is my friend was referring to his previous films almost more than than drive my car but
0: Yeah, I mean, when I I talked to him, he referenced Romare and Douglas Sirk as both, like, these huge influences. And I feel like this is a movie in which both those influences come together so perfectly that they never, there's no tension, you know? They just, he's somehow able to reach both those. I I wouldn't call them opposite, but they are different extremes Well, it's, like, heavy
1: and light. I mean, like, Romare is, like, the ultimate filmmaker of kind of, like lightness like his touch is so light in the in, in and and circus yeah, like i mean like yeah. wheel
3: of fortune and fantasy is like a riff off of It's yeah. like paris trilogy right. yeah. so which is also about triangles and triangulation relationships
4: but however much hamaguchi talks about these western filmmakers who are influences i just i see the work in relation to Japanese cinema, especially early Japanese cinema, 1930s Japanese cinema and 40s Japanese cinema, films by people like Shimizu or Sato Yamanaka or Mikio Nurusei, where there are there is this space in the film, in the narrative time of the film, to introduce a gallery of faces and um, figures that fill out the world and, and that end up being the most um, leaving the, 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 the most enduring impression on you when you exit. And I mean, I'm particularly thinking of just the space that this film has to have this scene about midway through uh, where the director of the the play, the the lead character uh, goes to uh, have dinner at the house of um, uh, the kind of the the dramaturgs the sort of the, the producer of the production and his wife whom he discovers at this dinner is in fact, one of the actors in his, um, in his play. And he didn't, he didn't realize when he was auditioning, they withheld it so that there would be no prejudice. And this scene seems to have nothing to do with the, uh, um, the, the kind of, you know, the, the main storyline. And yet it also is a moment where there is a turn in the relationship between himself and the driver, which is the core relationship, at least, of the second half of the movie. So at one at one and the same time, he fills out the world. He creates a lovely sense of just being in a domestic space. And there's great little unexpected details, like how the potatoes that they're being served were grown in the garden. And... And, and then the driver at one point just kind of checks out from the, from the conversation at dinner table and goes and plays with, with the dog that, the, that this couple has. All these little details and then, and yet, it's actually this moment where something very decisive, a decisive change in the relationship between the two main characters occurs and it occurs without you even really realizing it. And I, I think it's just, that's, that's really special. That's not something that
1: I want to yeah. levy one one criticism. <laughs> That's something that drives me nuts about this movie. Is how did the actor guy have time to go beat up the other guy and actually to the point where he died and then get back? It's just uh, the like the timeline didn't add <laughs> okay. up. It drove me nuts the entire, once it happened. Yeah, one shot. Yeah, yeah, it just, I <laughs> couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, just make, has couldn't make,
0: it has a really strong punch. That area. was
1: the, that was the only thing that was inorganic. <laughs> the only um,
0: well the other inorganic thing is that the car has the steering wheel on the wrong yeah, side of the road right like um it's on the left
1: well in in japan cars have steering wheels on the right, right? oh
0: then whatever it is yeah it's it's like switched like it's That's not right. what it's, it, it should be Western, in japan right? yeah. yeah so it's like I don't know. There are contrivances, but I think they're not errors, you know? I mean, that's what I, I... The contrivances bothered me. Some of the big ones don't quite work, but these small ones I don't see as errors. I think it's a kind of very willful thing. We
4: haven't even begun to talk about, like, the first half of the movie before the credits. Or not half, the first third of the movie before the credits. And I mean, it's just there's so much... Yeah. Also, the best... To. That <laughs> is the best, like, credit. Yeah, when the credits drop, like,
1: yeah. 30 minutes in, Forty, yeah. Uh, for, yeah. I was like, wow, that's pretty audacious. Yeah, it is like it is like Dostoy- I mean, Dostoevsky keeps popping in my mind, but like as if uh, Dostoevsky, like plus high hanging out with Eric Romer, like or like <laughs> in some weird way, he's definitely at operating at uh, extremes. A broad, yeah, it's funny when
2: I asked him his influences, he said one 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 word:
3: Cassavetes.
1: Wow, that is unbelievable. He's
2: giving a different answer to everybody. He's Cassavetes. giving
3: so he did like a Criterion top 10, which I won't reveal, but I was like, "Whoa, this is like completely different than like what you've revealed in interviews." So, we'll come oh, out soon. You know,
0: it's a voracious <laughs> artist, clearly, and cinephile. Yeah. Um, I think we should do the grand reveal.
1: All right, the big reveal. What is so, it going to okay, be folks? Yeah, d- now
0: B- do people kind of know? Yeah.
4: Like <laughs> you got a better memoria. <laughs>
0: All right, the number number one movie of our poll is... Let's get a
1: drum roll. Memoria. Memoria. Thank God it's not
4: licorice pizza.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, that would have been an
4: interesting conversation. We could do the... We should do the our least favorite movie. Well, to be clear I actually put it quite high on my list but I did not want to talk about that movie if it had won the film comment poll I just would not want to have that conversation <laughs> I don't think I don't think or I would have uh, yeah we would have quit
0: have our jobs with that. I'm kidding <laughs> uh, <top>.
1: <laughs> we don't we don't dislike it that much no 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 let's talk about Memoria though
0: yeah well I I know Clint and I both like are huge fans it was my number one
1: well, my number one
2: it
0: was yeah. it was
1: my number one too
0: yeah how Anybody about...
1: else want to reveal there?
2: It was not my number one. Um, <laughs> let's start there. I, uh, well, I mean, but, but you know, I did not, I know you were, we were supposed to see it on a big screen. I didn't see it on a big screen. I saw it off a DVD. Ooh. Complete with a, complete with an admonition from the director. <laughs> did Antel you wear Swain, headphones though? At the start saying, this really isn't the way you should be watching this movie. Um, but, uh, and I, I'm not the world's biggest fan, um, of Apichatpong. Um, Though I, I do, uh, like up until uh, Tropical Malady, I, I'm, I'm totally with the program. Mm. And then after that, it becomes a little more hitter, because mm. I think Tropical Malady is his masterpiece. Um, I, th- th- but as I was watching this, I was like, I really should have seen this on a big screen. And I didn't. Um, and I do feel like it really does, I mean, it almost works best as that almost like an installation piece i mean i don't i i just well, i, some mean, people yeah. sometimes use I think it dismissive. i think that's very right. on
0: on point yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, so sometimes people can use that as a dismissive way of yeah. referring to a film but it really does feel <coughs> like you're just supposed to like live in those spaces um i, I think it's a fascinating idea for a film <laughs> um
0: I think yeah. you got to see
1: it in the theater. Yeah, I mean, I, totally I and and I when can't you say
0: imagine it... it being the same experience. No. Yeah, I mean, it's an
1: the no. the the, the um, sound design is like overwhelming in this movie, and then like you know just as important as as the image, and it's really only communicated like when you're in the in the you know, is looking at me like I'm saying something no, wrong. No, no,
0: I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing. Oh, okay. like, I, I think that's ab- absolutely true. and I, So yeah.
1: my point just being, uh, yeah, don't watch this at home, but you can't watch it at home, so you're going to have to go see
4: it in the theater. And uh, y- y- I think it'll be worth your while. I mean, I'm really glad that you compared it to an installation piece because for me, I- I'm also someone who's had a mixed relationship with the Peach I Pong. I think I, I probably am... I like some of the work post Tropical Malady more than, than Bilga does, but at the same time, I've always been a little dissatisfied, particularly with how his films wrap up, and the ends of his films, and just a little dissatisfied with things heading into the home stretch. It's always this kind of feeling of a, a wonderful world of possibilities opened up, and then there's some kind of you know, momentum that it lacks heading, heading into the end, particularly with Uncle Boon Me. Um, and this film, I think it's perfectly structured. I think mm-hmm. it's his most perfectly and elegantly structured and whittled down film, uh, particularly because it's, there's, there's a, a symmetry to it with one scene that happens near the beginning of the film and another scene that happens at the end, both of which involve a sort of radio uh, drama or a radio kind of aspect to, to, to the film being played up. One is when Tilda Swinton's character goes to... Uh, try to recreate in a uh, sound theater in a in a in a studio uh, the sound that she is hearing in her head that she can't quite place with a, with the assistance of a young man named Ernan, and the the scene near the end of the film is a scene with an older man also named Ernan who uh, with whom she is meeting in his house over a, a, just his his dinner table and uh during which we hear a we hear a kind of in essence sort of a radio drama and uh and i'm not going to kind of reveal more about it because i i assume some people haven't seen the film or people who will listen to the podcast won't have seen it yet um but these two scenes which bookend the film to me just are perfectly mirrors mirrors of each other one is a artificial space a studio space where sound is being created another is a is a is a a home a domestic space a very porous domestic space where we can see the jungle outside outside the windows
0: and a mythical space Yeah.
4: yeah and and the sound seems to come from somewhere else from the depths of time or history and uh it seems to me like a perfect metaphor for cinema for what cinema is as a uh, technological phenomenon, but also an artistic uh, medium. And that's where the installation piece comes in, because as you watch it, you think of how a Pong, who has made installations and, and has really kept the boundaries between his practice as a filmmaker and his practice as a white cube kind of artist, very fluid, um, you see these boundaries collapsing, in this movie. That this movie is the embodiment of his ideas of cinema the kind of as a modern art form. And I was, like, lifted from my seat at that last, that last sequence. I mean, it was just out of body. And it, Alice Tully has, like, had problems with its sound for years. It's always been a problem for the New York Film Festival. But uh, it sounded, like, incredible there. And, and there's a moment where the sound goes out in this scene, and it's like you could hear pin drop. It's just extraordinary.
3: Yeah, I um, I really like Apichapong's past work. Um, I was like, I mean, my expectations were extremely high. Um, I must say I was like a little just disappointed, but granted, this ranked still like, I don't know, eighteen or nineteen on my list. So, um, I mean. Like on just like a basic level, I was just pretty fascinated and found it to be like a pleasant and like invigorating, embracing experience just to hear him like kind of shape narrative or structure the film on very different terms, which is like just through sound and like Tilda Swinton reacting to these like different soundscapes that are emerging from who knows where, um, so, like, on that level, it, like, kind of just went down easy, <laughs> which is an odd thing to say about, like, a durational-esque film like this. Um, but I I I didn't really like the end. There's, like, this um, just little twist that was a little on the nose and, like, I corny that for me. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean,
0: I just... But we can't give it away, <clears> but yeah, I... Right, we can't give
3: it away. <laughs> but, like, I just didn't like it. I mean, that's, like, my gut feeling. But... Um, I don't know there was something not to be like he should be restricted to um to thailand or, i mean obviously that's not the case but like the fact that it was in like Colombia and that like tilda swinton was in it there was like a certain like gallery polish to it that like kind of alienated me from it um so i mean like fascinating experience like a singular film like truly but like not my favorite of the year.
4: Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of people say that. I, especially a lot of my avant-garde film, connected or immersed friends, uh, and I just, I, I think that we do this a lot with when when filmmakers leave their their kind of home, their homeland, their home territory, and and for me it. You know, he doesn't do the things that like Antonioni did <laughs> with his films, with like The Passenger and and uh, um, Zabriskie Point, which is a film that I actually like. But Blow Up and and The Passenger in particular are films that feel completely disconnected from the actor that. There, that, that Antonioni is working with. Like, there's felt like there's absolutely no rapport between David Hemmings and Antonioni and Blow Up, and there's, abs- there's certainly no rapport between Jack Nicholson and Antonioni in The Passenger. And in Memoria, they feel like entirely linked. Like, I just, to me, he evades a problem that, in fact, and also many he, filmmakers. he
0: thematizes it. To me, that's, yeah. you know, he thematizes the out of placeness and the alienation and the foreignness. I think.
1: And it also includes the like the audience becomes foreign as well. I mean, like the American audience, you know, the Colombian audience. But I think but the he movie is also them about well. some
0: kind of like yeah. some very elemental sense of foreignness. And not in a glib way, not like, oh, we're all <coughs> strange to one another, but it like it uses the Tilda Swinton characters out of placeness. Obviously, Apichat Pong's own out of placeness and these like gaps in sort of translation and mm-hmm. gaps in understanding to... communicate very strongly a sense of being out of sync with this world and sound is obviously a very powerful way to do that because sound is something that is bodily it's very intimate it like you know the we experience sound very intimately but its source can be very diffuse you know it's like this thing which can be kind of yeah it's just this it's this thing that exists in real life that is kind of magical like if you think about just how sound works on a physics level i mean and i think the film image <laughs> and image that's true but i think this film is really about the capacious things that can be conveyed through sound and via sound and i think foreignness is one of them and i love the ending because it's almost like This out-of-syncness that Tilda Swinton's character feels at various points in the film, they seem like she has insomnia, maybe she's depressed, maybe it's some kind of colonial, you know, retribution almost. I mean, she is this white foreigner in this land and there is, you know, there are these colonial histories or histories of, you know, the violent sort of um, pasts of Colombia that are coming back. And then it's, well, I, again, I don't want to give the twist away, or it could be a really simple uh, well, explanation drawn from a genre movie. And I love that.
1: The twist is not necessarily real either. I mean, I choose to believe, I choose to like That's read right. it that yeah, way. but it's but,
0: one of the possibilities, I right? I mean,
1: this is also his most, like, I, you, a, this is a peach at pong on Hollywood. Like, this is his most, uh, as <laughs> As he said, I think, in the in Q&A that, that, this movie is influenced by, like, Spielberg,
4: right? Close Encounters. Close Encounters, encounters yeah. yeah. Uh, and, um... Well, it's not really this movie, I think. I think he just he loves, liked, loves, he loves that movie. Yeah. He has always loved that movie. He's <laughs> talked about it before.
1: But this movie is influenced by Close
4: <laughs> Encounters. Yeah. yeah, And, uh, but I
1: also think, it, picking up on what Boga was saying earlier, it is his most kind of straightforward narrative as well. It follows a single character. The dream sequences and, like, the, the um the folklore, less kind of destabilizing to the narrative than in some of his other work. Yeah. Um, and it also picks up on his interest in like, you know, national trauma and history that you see in uh, Cemetery of Splendor and somehow translates that. I think that, that, that this foreign this distance, this distance that he has to this subject, to the hist- to Colombian history kind of commun- allows him to communicate that trauma maybe more effectively for me personally. This film just seems more focused. And I not to not to knock his other work at all. I think you it's know. a different it's creature
0: a, to me. It's a different creature from Yeah, his it's other a different ones. creature,
1: sure. Oh. That's a good way of putting
4: it. Yeah, it's it. just yeah. less local.
1: Right? Yeah. It's it's yeah, well, exactly.
0: narratively, formally he's well, just Well but
1: yeah, I do think yeah. it's I do think it's more stripped down some or just somehow more like conventional in it's in in its narrative but ultimately like a total you know can i say mind fuck like (laughs) yes
0: you can say mind (laughs) it it,
1: it ain't it ain't uh i mean close encounters is too but this is a little this is a whole nother ball of wax
0: well i feel like mind fuck is a pretty good note to end our countdown (laughs)
2: I think any so, yeah. Any other
0: last words?
2: <laughs> Where are the documentaries? That's a
1: good no question.
0: That's a good question. Yeah. Um, I thought about that. Do you think that that's just... I mean, it's, it's
2: you know... Year it, year it, or, it, yeah. It's It's common for sort of consensus-y top ten lists yeah. to not... Well,
1: always... do you have any documentaries you want to shout out?
2: Uh, I I mean, Flea is the one that mm. feels like it maybe should be there and, and isn't, but... Um, uh, I mean, I have a number of documentaries I, I really love this year, uh... Can you bring it? The the well, actually, and stuff before we dig water. into that, oh, let's. Great, yeah. um,
0: we should. We have slides with our full top twenty released and <laughs> undistributed. I feel like after we take a look at that, yeah. would be you know a good time to think about omissions. So.
1: All right, here we go. So. Number eleven, we yeah, have the bad luck.
0: 10. Twelve is the Velvet Underground.
1: I believe that is the only. Have uh, documentary that made the list, yeah.
0: yeah that's well, it's really
1: a shame. Frankly. The
0: inheritance yeah. is sort of hybrid, I right. feel like yes. it has bits of yeah, documentary. that's true. Then we have Bergman Island, El Planeta, oh, Licorice bad. Pizza at number 15, Sweet, <laughs> The Card Counter, The Woman Who there Ran. There you go. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry, Dude. The Woman Who Ran is before The Card Counter, and then The Inheritance, number 18, Harold and Mother's, number 19.
3: I thought it was bad. <laughs> so I, I also thought it was. Yeah, I wasn't. Not my, fans, not my, I, not my favorite. It's, it's, I
2: feel like it's a but tragedy that Bad Luck Banging is at <clears> eleven and not in the top ten. <clears> yeah,
1: because I, I, I was like, really I was like,
4: calling for it.
2: We yeah, and, and
1: that's also, also I almost considered kind of like putting huh? my that's finger. That's also partially on the
4: scale. documentary. It has bad Yeah,
0: it has our essay. Video. Also, there are two directors that appear twice on my list, which like doesn't happen very often. It was Hamaguchi and Judah because I put uppercase print, which is a documentary, which I really loved. Also on my list. Oh yeah, and oh, number Titan, twenty is to ten. Which was can... very
1: high on my list.
4: I don't know about everybody everybody yeah, else. Clint but likes that I film. like that movie. Shall we pass over that in silence?
0: Yeah, let's just uh, move on to the undistributed <laughs> films. <laughs> which is a fun list.
1: No, yeah. So do we, the undistributed list, these are films that still don't
4: have distribution, but you at know at
0: press time. Uh they had not announced distribution. So there are films that are coming out next year, but they're they they do not qualify for this list.
4: Mr. Bachman has distribution, Only I'm pretty one sure.
0: One film
1: at at presto. At
0: pressed at list tabulation a, time. <laughs> no.
3: Oh wooden water and, is great.
1: Uh, I think we stand this, this list is pretty good, I think. These movies they're all all deserve to be seen by a larger audience.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. It's so these titles are so much more evocative than the titles for the released movies, release, which is interesting. Very long true.
3: titles. Yeah. Well, nobody. <laughs> like, and yeah. I have. To, oh, you there are several so so documentary. So plenty the documentaries. documentaries. Yeah, yes.
1: several documentaries. But you know what's interesting
0: is to see how many of these make next year's released films, or you know, the or coming year's released films.
1: List. I really was hoping that we would get. this. I think we. I don't know if it would have made the top ten. It would have been in my. Yeah, that's it. Would have been in my top. Wait, Which we We are new. new. The Alice Diop movie. Oh,
3: Alice Diop. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Um, So this is our top twenty undistributed films of twenty twenty one list. We can each highlight a film that didn't make the the top
0: twenty or the top ten. Didn't make the top twenty.
1: I say, yeah, maybe top twenty.
4: I mean, I I just wanted to highlight a documentary. I, I, there's this film, Noturno. Um, by Gianfranco Rossi that was uh, at the New York Film Festival last year and had a very brief, like, fleeting virtual release at the beginning of this year, I think probably January or February. Uh, Rossi is best known for Fire at Sea, a documentary he made about the um, the uh, migrant crisis, especially um, migrants from Syria um, in in Sicily, Uh and uh this film is a companion to that he went to um the territories uh, near the borders of uh Iraq and um uh Syria and and um Lebanon and um um kind of Kurdish Turkey and filmed basically a a, a film in this territory that ISIS controlled and uh spent i think a good three years, you know, either filming or living in the area with the people that he would, the subjects of the film. And it's a kind of extraordinary immersion in their world. And uh, and I I think a a film of great dignity and poetry, and I I wish more people would see it.
2: I already mentioned Flea, but uh, of the film I would single out is... um... This is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection, which I, I did mention earlier, um, which is a film from Lesotho um, and got a release earlier this year um, and was at Sundance last year. Um, but, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it, really. <laughs> but but just, just one re-shadowed. of my... It, it was yeah. my number two movie of the year uh, and could have easily been number one, I think. Um,
1: well, what was your number one? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, oh,
0: That's a pretty yeah. good one and two. I mean, that's like eclectic
2: i mean it's it it was probably going to be my number one then then a certain point i was like i have to make a net number one i've seen it seven times i mean you know um but uh but yeah it's, it's it's i mean it's it's a film i haven't been able to stop thinking about since i saw it at sundance at this point almost two years ago um and uh it's available i think you know I don't know if it's on streaming, but it's avail- certainly was available on, on demand for a long time. So I, it's out there somewhere. You can see it. Beatrice? Um
3: I guess I will shout out, I think I put this at like number 10, but uh Bruno Dumont's France, which mm. um is playing in theaters right now. Um, in this theater. yes. <laughs> um I won't say much about it except I would urge you like not to strictly look at it through the lens of it just being like a satire of the media. Like I, I think it's much more about star power and and cinematic presence and what it means to um, just cinematically express true emotions in a world full of faker full of like fakery and like fraudulence. Um, I mean, it's a theme Bruno, in
1: a lot of the t- in the movies that we just yeah, yeah, like. no,
3: definitely true. I love that interplay between reality and artifice over here. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a great film.
1: Um, I think I'm going to demur because in the interest of time, but Devika, maybe. <laughs>
0: um, it, I will as well. Um, I think we can. I think we can end it there. And I already men- mentioned uppercase print, which necessarily is not the one I would shout out, but I do think it got sort of swept under. And like, yeah, we, you know, that's. I think it's been a big year for Radu Judah as well, and yeah. so I, I want people to pay attention to him. Also. Yeah, I do
1: wish we could have talked about bad luck thing. Yeah, I was looking forward to it.
0: There will and- be. I'm sure there will be other opportunities. Um, but anyway, thank you, everyone, for sticking with us and thank joining you. this countdown. Thanks to our panelists for helping us unveil this. Also, so tonight we'll be sending out a the film comment letter with the top 10 lists with original appreciations by film comment critics. And our uh, full top 20 list will also go up online, along with all the individual ballots submitted by the voters. So... Just look out for that stuff, you know, if you just want to dig deeper.
1: And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the Film Comment letter on FilmComment.com. And thank you all for coming. Thank you and uh, happy happy holidays. holidays. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Eingy. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.